Hi, my name is Lloyd Sarbutz, and this podcast is brought to you by Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. In this episode, I welcome Veronica O'Keen, who is a professor of psychiatry and practicing consultant psychiatrist at Trinity College Dublin, where she leads a research program in depression. Veronica's book, The Rag and Bone Shop, distills a lifetime of practice and her understanding of memory, which offers insights into psychiatry, recent developments in neuroscience, and literature by canonical greats and contemporary luminaries. I hope you enjoy it. incredible um it's I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you I felt like I'm really out of my depth but I love that about uh, reading non-fiction something that's really thoughtful um enlightening uh, at times provocative and um in in the case of reading your book it made me uh, acutely aware um at how um I'm not as well read as I maybe should be <laughs> working in a bookshop but um I thought um, your experience um, of working within psychiatry coupled with um, the developments of neuroscience um, has um, has just made for uh, an incredible book um, that I, I just hope uh, people uh, will discover when the bookshop's open. I, I know I've sold copies with the doors closed, but it's going to be one of those books that I will be like putting into people's hands and go, read this, shake up your world. It's, it's incredible. Um, so I guess the first question I wanted to ask is what do you hope as the author of this book that, um, that readers will discover and take away uh, from all of the ideas and thinkers and writers that you, um, you kind of shed a light on? Well, thanks very much, Lloyd, for those very kind comments. And um, what do I hope for? I suppose I hope for people to understand themselves a little bit more and understand how they to the way they view the world, uh, their perceptions of how their past life have formed them and their culture, and to just have a more coherent sense of the human condition um, in the sense of we, we operate within the vast space of our brains, but also the limitations of our brains. We only have one brain and we can only form so many uh, foundational memories. Um, after after that, it's imagination, really, and allowing yourself to go places. So it's just to have to give people a sense of an increased understanding of how their brain operates and how we are ultimately all composed of the uh, the memories um, that we take in through our sense and from very very early in life. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, second. Yeah. <laughs> second aim, sorry, was just about psychiatry, I suppose. I, I think psychiatry has been very much marginalised, although I'm not sure that we understand terribly well yet how psychiatry can inform us 
about a normal brain um, or a typical brain. And um, for example, with neurology, we know we've learned a lot and people can understand that if a certain part of your motor cortex is blotted out by a hemorrhage or by a lack of oxygen, that a certain part of your body won't work. So I think that's out there in general awareness. But I'm not sure that psychiatry and the illnesses and the problems and the experiences associated with psychiatry are understood in the context of the brain. And this is reasonable because we don't really understand them. But I think by looking at the absence of those, what we take for granted, normal uh, functions of consciousness and of thinking and of feeling and the integration of all those. By looking at disintegrated models, we get even an appreciation of our own um, look in the draw or not as it may be for some of us. Yeah, I think um, that was one of the key things I took away was um, when you were writing about the case studies, whether it was um, Edith at the beginning or HM um, with the um, hippocampi, or, or was it, yeah, was it the hippocampi that was um, kind of uh, uh, operated and removed and he was unable mm -hmm. to function, um, in, for memories even, sorry, he was able to function, but in um, a certain capacity as opposed to others. Um, and I, I felt like um, your book has kind of shed a light on um, these kind of, forms of illness to destigmatize or at least enlighten. Um, I'm thinking schizophrenia was one of the illnesses that you touch upon um, in your book. And for me, I, I recall a family friend suffering from schizophrenia, but I was at such a young age that one, I couldn't comprehend what that meant. But for like most of my life, I've been scared of the idea of what the illness is just purely from like a one sentence that my mum said about it, and that's from like a limited understanding of the illness. Um, one of the, the the amazing things about mm -hmm. the case studies and uh, the literature you tie in and the neuroscience um, has kind of allowed me to step away from this with a, a really kind of enhanced uh, awareness and almost a compassion for sufferers of these um, kind of acute uh, illnesses. Um, so, I, I, I mean, thank you for that as well, because um, I feel enlightened. Um, but I guess to go back to um, like the research and the insights that you share, um, you write about um, the subjective experience in memory, um, and that is kind of like the key uh, focus of the book, um, how we make memories and how they make us. Um, so for listeners to the podcast and um, uh, readers of your book over the coming months and years, um, can you briefly outline how memory works, um, how memory is formed um, and how we recall it? Um, if you could do that in something really pithy. <laughs> I Because there, there's so much, there's so many... <laughs> things that you can touch on? Uh, well, memory is made through sensation. 
And this is so obvious, um, but I, I probably spent a chapter, a whole chapter on that yeah. and how we came to understand that our memory is entirely dependent on our sensations and depending upon how our sensations um, are wired in our brains, I suppose, uh, the memories from that hard wiring of the genetically determined, um, you know, we it will determine our memory. So that if somebody was blind, for example, they compensate with um, touch and other sensations. So that instead of the visual cortex developing another, the visual cortex and the brain into the other different cortices, um, because there's no point, it's not functional because nothing, no sensations are coming from the eye. And so the brain of each of us is formed by the way we sense the world. And that could be something very basic, as I said, like, um, like blindness or being a non-hearing person. And um, so the sensation goes into your brain in whatever way it does, whatever compensated or very highly developed way it does. And it goes down through the cortex, which is the outside of our brain. That's where all our sensory information is um, not just assimilated, but where it lands, if you like, from the peripheral nerves, from the eyes and ears and from the body and from the skin. And then it goes it goes down, actually, to the hippocampus, which is the memory center of the brain. So sensation really goes to memory. And in the memory, it forms patterns of cells connected up together. Um, so one place would be recorded, say, for example, like a constellation of a few neurons together that forms a very particular pattern for that place. And we can see that in animals' experiments, that even for a tiny little space, one neuron will light up that will be a specialist indicator or reflection of that tiny, tiny space, that tiny place. Yeah. That, that there is a specific be... pattern. Yeah, sorry, that was um, a reference sorry. to uh, the experiment on the rats where you um, you mentioned the researchers inserted... Um, was it like a micro aerial or some sensor into like one neuron and the rat was able to yeah. recognize and remember that single square amongst many, but the, the neuron um, would fire at that, that square. I mean, that's just, that's right. That's mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, our brains are so clever. <laughs> our brains are so, so clever. Uh, and, um, you know, when, when you break down the way the neurons work, it, it is absolutely fascinating. So we, we're very, the, the memory center, the hippocampus in the brain is, as you've just said, they're extremely sensitive and selective for place. Uh, this is very central to autobiographical memory. Um, you know, and I give an example in the book of where were you when something happened? We always usually remember where we were. I remember where I was, even though I was just about a conscious infant when um, JFK died John Kennedy, because he was so um, 
such an important figure in Irish history and Irish American history. Yeah. In complete history for you, <laughs> it's it's abstract history for me, but it's memory for me. And I remember the place I was. I had no idea where it was. But and you know, you find this with people that they tend to remember place. So as you as you said, place is terribly important. So we've gone from the sensory cortex down to the hippocampus. That's the memory center. And then when we sleep at night, somehow or other, the information that we've embedded, that we've neuronally wound together in the hippocampus, these memories make their way up to the cortex, back up to the cortex for permanent storage. And there's a special part uh, in the front of the brain uh, where all of the memory from the day's memory is integrated with all of the memory that already exists, uh, which could be 20 years, 30, 40, 50, depending on what age you are. So that's basically how memories are made with autobiographical memory and therefore biographical memory and memory of life in the prefrontal cortex and sensory memory in um, kind of on the surface of the brain, but they're densely interconnected so that if you remember an event, it would also fire off maybe a sensory um, event in your cortex to as if it was happening to make you imagine um, as if it was happening to you. So it's it's like a director that will or a, or a um, conductor of an orchestra who will alight and set off different parts of the orchestra to create a orchestration of of a memory of a picture, yeah, of a feeling of an experience. Yeah, because you you write about um, a lot of personal experiences, like where you were when uh, you discovered um, or you learned that JFK had been assassinated, but you you talk about um like you you're not actually understanding what was happening at that point you just remember it because it was your mum and uh, a neighbor uh kind of consoling each other but you were a witness to that um and another one that you kind of cite is uh like where were you when elvis died or where were you when 9-11 happened and um 9-11 is for me, like a seminal moment is where I first moved up to London. And I, yeah, I remember where I was. Um, I was at uh, Central St. Martins and I never witnessed, I, I, I think I'd already traveled to um, university that day. And I remember um, in the evenings going to the local corner shop to pick something up. And I still remember the question I asked when I s- saw the images on the TV. I went to the shopkeeper, I went, what movie are you watching? And he went, this happened this morning. And for me, that's an indelible memory. But I just remember, um, you know, where I was when I asked that question and I saw the images. But the rest of the day, completely blank, Um, which I, yeah, I think there's an incredible thing. This idea that you index and you, the sensations. Um, Sorry, I'm just... (laughs) I'm just kind of enthralled by the, these ideas that you discuss. Um, but you talk about place um, and our sense of person um, within these memories as being like um, like a cornerstone. Um, but you also, in the book, you talk about um, a lot of 
a lot of thinkers, but one of the names I remember popping up a lot was Donald Hebb, um, who, am I right in thinking, came up with that catchphrase mm. of um, uh, neurons that fire together over a length of time. Wire to- Is that right? Wire together? Um, sorry, could you elaborate on the uh, those kind of three coordinates of um, memory uh, production for, for the audience? Sure. Um, first of all, it's, it's very interesting what you say about place because you described um, really a visual image of a place with an associated feeling, uh, a feeling of being, you know, really shocked where, and I think that's typical of important moments in collective history are in your biographical life over a long period of time, um, snapshots, what I call snapshots. Um, To me, it's like old-fashioned photography, which your generation wouldn't really understand because you click everything. But in my day, you would get 24 snaps out of a reel. The reel was expensive. The film reel was expensive. And it was very expensive to get them uh, produced as well. So... A snapshot is different to you than it is for me, but the principle of the old-fashioned snaps of they're just remaining the further away you go from your life, uh, from your childhood, the fewer the snapshots you have, but the more enduring in a way they are as well. Uh, so, and you know, if you look photographs maybe from your from your grandparents, they very few photographs. Yeah, and you know, you remember them as well through those photographs. So by retelling certain instances in our life, we reinforce those um, those moments. And I think with collective moments, you can see it more astutely because we're all sharing this information, the shock, the implications for future habits. We're, tra- you know, we're going across time and, and we're collectively discussing it. So those memories as well get imprinted. And that's bringing me on to Donald Hebb, who uh, basically said that the, the, the more these memory neurons wire together through the immediacy of an image or a conversation or an event, the more, the more they fire, the more they wire together. And firing really means that, you're, uh, that something catches your attention and registers itself in your consciousness or in your perception. And then the more you think about it, the more you look at it, the more you discuss it, the more these memories will wire together. And it's like consolidation of memory. So of all the memories that you've had today, for example, only some, your your brain can't remember them all. So it'll discard some, but the ones it doesn't discard um, are the ones that wire together. So it's like, it's just like me injecting the same circuit all the time with your attention. And you will have a particular memory that information will resonate with. So you'll build on that knowledge. And maybe, um, you know, something, something will happen that might dent that certainty or that web. Uh, 
of fundamental information. That's terribly exciting too. It may be slightly destabilizing for your memory webs, but in a way it might enrich them and help them to, you know, slightly connect up or wire in a different way. So firing really relates to immediacy. It relates to perception, which will be different for everybody. And then the, uh, so that's firing rather. And then wiring is when it connects up to consolidate in a, a more substantial form. Okay. So there, were, there was a triangulation of um, head and place. What was the third thing? Um, yeah, it was... Uh, Did um, you ask me a third thing, Lloyd? Uh, it was like time, place and person. Um, and it was, yeah, the coordinates of memory okay. construction. Which, yeah. Um, and I, I guess you've covered yeah. how they're integral um, from a point of perception and sensation over time becoming consolidated memory. Um, do you mind uh, kind of discussing what if one of those two kind of or one or two of those three fundamental coordinates are uh, missing? Um, because there's some case studies where um, a, a coordinate like a, a time is not available um, for that person or um, their, their sense of self. Um, and what are the ramifications for that? Yeah. Okay. Um, that's, that's a very profound question, but I'll keep it as superficial as I can. <laughs> so I, the, the fundamental thing to register a memory um, is that we attend to it. And by attend to it, I mean that we have a certain level of arousal that allows us to um, register the sensation coming into our brain. Now, the easiest way to to look at arousal really is as a, a lower form of consciousness um, or wakefulness. So if I'm very um, tired, or you know, I'm not going to register information, and I'm a morning person, so come ten o'clock, my brain is mush. Yeah. So and other people, you know, can't register till very late in the evening. So you know, we've got different types of circadian rhythms that will determine your attention. But in a very fascinating example of this was a woman that I treated who was depressed for years and years and years, very, very depressed. She was cared for by her husband. She'd been ill all of her adult life with manic depression or bipolar disorder. And she usually was either manic or depressed. She was rarely what we call euthymic or having a normal mood state. In retrospect, this woman had been depressed for many years and her husband told the story of her not really being responsive to the world, not watching television, barely dressing herself, only eating treatment. So she was alive at, uh, you know, but at a very um, subdued level. Yeah. And she went manic. She switched to mania and was hospitalized that she'd actually registered no events for the few years when she was depressed. And that was absolutely fascinating for me because although we all know in psychiatry that when people are profoundly depressed, 
that they don't register memories. And we see them coming out of this. And, you know, we say, do you remember coming into hospital is a typical question when somebody's getting better. And they say, mm, not really. The last I remember is, you know, the few days before I came in. So the bottom line with a very depressed brain, the brain isn't aroused enough to register memory. So the first thing we need um, to make a memory is we need a certain level of arousal. Then if you push up the scale um, slightly more to of consciousness, you come to a, a, a higher, what we call a higher level of consciousness. It's a more, it's what we tend to call consciousness. Medics call consciousness degrees of, of arousal and we have a scale for measuring that. But I think what the, the more common um, idea about consciousness is really a level of awareness, a level of awareness of yourself in the world and a level of awareness of your own brain, if you like. And, uh, you know, it is within consciousness that we manipulate our thoughts and our memories. And this conversation that we have obviously couldn't happen without higher levels of consciousness. I'm listening to what you're saying. You're listening to what I'm saying. We're manipulating all that information with our memories and projecting into the um, trajectory, I suppose, of of the ongoing um, sharing of thoughts that we're having. Yeah. And um, that sort of consciousness, unfortunately, uh, is is not present in a lot of uh, people's brains, maybe for some reason of uh, brain damage pre-birth or during birth or genetic abnormalities. Um, and then bits of that sort of consciousness can be absent in a sort of fascinating way in schizophrenia. Because while people with schizophrenia have, generally speaking, normal um, intelligence and normal ability to manipulate information, um, at a certain point in development during adolescence where we learn to integrate ourselves with ourselves and with the world, um, that their consciousness fails to develop what we could loosely call consciousness. And consciousness being awareness of oneself in the world. I'm not you, you're not me, but we're communicating together. But I know I'm separate. But people with schizophrenia, somehow the boundaries of their experience of self-consciousness breaks down and they can often feel unduly influenced by other people, like people can read their thoughts, that their thoughts are being spoken out loud. All of these we absolutely take for granted. Um, my notion of my private self, my notion of the way I am in the world, my uh, the context within which I see other people, I may understand them as individuals in their own right, but it's much more common for people to project themselves mildly into other people because that's the way they understand people. Um, you know, they're all levels of consciousness and meta-consciousness, but in schizophrenia, you see people where that foundational notion of self um, a self-consciousness doesn't is broken down in some way. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean that's fascinating. Um, this idea that the boundaries kind of are broken down. Um, that that for me was just like wow. Um, in terms of uh, the coordinates and um, 
I, I guess I want to kind of talk about your career because your your book is a result of um, decades of practice and um, kind of research and um, the uh, the discipline of neuroscience is something that's kind of really gathered pace in the last two or three decades. It's um, kind of really un- unearthing um, so much information and knowledge about how our brains work. Um, I mean, there, there's a case uh, towards the end of part one where you're talking about uh, John O'Keefe, um, who won a Nobel Prize uh, or co-won a Nobel Prize for his discovery of place cells and time. And the, the, this idea of time and place cells um, is only, what, uh, 14, 15 years old as an idea? Is that is that right? Maybe a little longer. Um, so um, I, I guess what I wanted to um, ask for uh, listeners and uh, future readers of your book, um, what the time and place uh, cell is um, and what uh, what their relation to our ideas, our notion of time, because um, time, yeah, time in terms of physics is dependent on, uh, a re- it's a relative uh, concept. It, it needs, time needs uh, an object, it needs a place. Um, may you may you elaborate on that um, in a way that yeah uh, kind of touches on your expertise and research um yeah uh to maybe start with play cells john o'keefe and the um mosler couple of neuroscientists um they discovered play cells if you like but that, that was in the 1970s And um, it was only in very recent years that we're moving into the zone of of time and beginning to understand that. And physics is always a little bit ahead of us in terms of understanding the world out there, which in a way is easier to in a way is easier to grasp than the internal world. What fascinates me about physics, and when I talk about I talk about physics quite a lot in terms of time, Mm. is that physics, a lot of physics now is about perception um, rather than something out there. And I find this immensely interesting. And I think it's a two-way thing because in a way, the physicists are describing how our brains understand the world. So, you know, our brains understand the world in terms of time and in terms of place and in terms of person. Now, physics doesn't concern itself with person, really, except from the point of view of uh, the only way to understand the world is the brain. But they don't understand like they're not psychologists, basically. But they are you know, I, I think physics is coming into the brain, and I think more and more they're realizing that you know that relativity is about perception. Yeah. It's about you know things things happen out there, um, and they're strange and time you know time curved. But is time curved? It's curved because it's curved because that's the only way we can perceive it. So in in the sense. 
Um, and I'm, I'm, very, I'm very fascinated by this. Time really is located in place um, and is located in place and in movement. So time is the earth turning um, on its own axis 24 hours. It's the, you know, the, the month derived from the lunar cycle around the earth. A year is the time it takes the um, earth to circle the sun and so on and so forth. And before we had made up time, clock time, uh, the time was all about motion. And, uh, you know, they were obsessed with the motions of the star, but it's always motion. So going back to the brain, um, one must start understanding the brain. But the, the, the brain is all integrated. It's an outcome of multiple messy integrated circuits. But if you, if you want to break it down, you've got to break it down somehow. Um, you've got to consider place as being central to memory. Now, if you think about an old movie reel, um, the sense of motion in the movie reel is brought about by the juxtapositioning of still clips together. So that's what we do in our brain. We fix, for example, pictures of one moment and we juxtapose it beside another picture, beside another picture, beside another picture. And putting all these pictures together gives us that sense of things moving forward. Yeah. But memory, I'm just talking about time now, memory isn't a clock. Um, memory isn't a time machine. Memory is something a lot more fluid than that. So when we're appreciating the moment, we appreciate it through our memory. So in a sense, our memory is our past. Um, you know, it's not, we, we might allude to it for our purposes of communication as being December 1997. And, you know, that, that forms some um, proxy to the memory that we, we have and allows us to communicate that particular um, time in our lives to somebody else's time. But really, we are in our memories the whole time because we perceive according to the patterns of our memory, as I explained, passing through the hippocampus and all around the cortex. So everything that we um, see is perceived through memory. And the same memory that, um, you know, brings us into the future because the purpose of memory um, is to predict. Now, if you think about the memory of a very simple animal like a rat, a rat's memory is, the biggest part of a rat's memory is its smell. So they've got a very big olfactory cortex. Now, it's important for the rat to recognize a smell. So in a sense, they're in the past recognizing, let's say, a smell of a human being. So they recognize the smell of a human being. Um, that's in their memory. But then they project it into the future because they think, you know, uh, this is danger. So they move in response to that. So memory goes from the past and time, in this sense, time is a part of the way we remember because we're always moving forward uh, from the present moment uh, forward, but we're living in memory and we're projecting into the future. So really time, past, present and future is, is a con continuous stream of consciousness interacting with memory. 
And St. Augustine said that there are three times. There's the present past, the present present, and the present future, because consciousness only exists in the present. So we're all the time floating through this made-up time frame that we have, but it's in relation to place. So think of the movie sequence and each still. And then in relation to person, so just to finish the triangulation, um, we relate everything to ourselves, ultimately. So that's really where the person comes into it. Of course, we recognize other people and we attribute to them uh, what we perceive to be their way of being in the world. So all of the all of the time we're, yeah, we, we live in a triangulation um, of, of time, place and person. Place cells, John O'Keefe, identified those um, with the Moslers in um, the 1970s. But the time cells um, do, th th there is a part of the hippocampus that integrates these place cells and they're called time cells to give us the sense of motion. So we, we have actual place cells and we have a part, a separate part of the hippocampus where the movement is recorded. So these two um, are integrated. We're beginning to understand the way the neurons connect and integrate and form networks to give us this sense of movement. Thank you so much for that. Uh, um, I feel like I haven't really discussed um, two things that are kind of glaring at me. Um, one is the second part of your book. Um, so we've talked about how memory is created, but we haven't discussed how uh, memory makes us. And um, also at the beginning of the book, um, you, you have a quote from Camus, but also um, you talk about Proust, um, who is um, the most, like, arguably the most famous author that we attribute to our idea of memory. Um, and I guess um, his famous work in... Um, in search of lost time is uh, is pretty much um, that active pursuit of the fluidity, which we've kind of discussed with time and uh, the place. Um, I I don't know how much um, you you wish to talk about Proust as like a, a key influence for your research or um, uh, for your passion for literature um, and. I guess the, the the second thing I want to, or the, the final thing I want to kind of conclude this discussion is, um, is about the second part of your book, uh, how memory makes us, um, starting from how we have this kind of void in our early years. Like um, you, you write about how uh, our earliest memories occur when we're around the age of three. Um, which is when when I thought about that, it, it wasn't the first time I'd heard this, but to see it written down and uh, discussed in depth um, was was something that I'm still trying to kind of uh, configure with uh, with myself. But um, yeah, I, mm -hmm. I I thought actually yeah, my earliest memory is around three years old, and it's a very it's a very vague memory. It's like I just remember like. The wallpaper in a bedroom it's not it's nothing kind of uh mm. 
earth shattering. But <laughs> can we talk about the second part of the book or um, maybe those key figures in literature, uh, literature, uh, history that um, you kind of touch on in the book as well, um, whether it would be Beckett. Uh, Samuel Beckett was um, someone that whose name popped up. I think you talked about three pieces of his work. Uh, like the unnameable and waiting for Godot, and um, uh, there was a third one which eludes me right now. Sorry, but I guess that's in keeping with the discussion about memory. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't remember either, <laughs> but I have an excuse. <laughs> um, and for, for, so, very briefly about literature. The reason I think literature has been so important for me in developing my ideas about the human condition is that there was no neuroscience, apart from their brilliance. Yeah. There was no neuroscience, um, you know, until really until the 1970s, 1980s. And that didn't reach me um, until I qualified, until after I qualified, because there, there's very little brain taught in psychiatry and very, very little talk then. And it was very piecemeal, it was, you know, a little bit of neurophysiology about how neurons work, but there was no attempt to put it all together. And I just think the knowledge wasn't there to be able to understand the brain as, a, you know, a, a, a circuit of mad little neurons running around wildly and somehow things being filtered out and memory picking other things out for us. So, I mean, that's that's very, very new, the idea of the connected brain. Yeah. And there's a whole discipline now, uh, you know, connectomics, uh, looking at that. So before all that, I was always fascinated. I always wanted to be a psychiatrist, but I was fascinated by brains and how they worked. And uh, I decided I'd do psychiatry for that reason. So, uh, you know, I was very... Con I was very focused on authors who talked about uh, subjective experience, phenomenology. So all of the people that I write about really were people who are observing themselves in quite brilliant ways are observing other people. Um, you know, Henry James is a great example um, of somebody who is, you know, he wasn't a breakthrough writer because Dostoevsky did it in the middle, but he was exceptional. So all of these brilliant people who went from, you know, a narrative style of telling a story to subjective experience, you know, I was just fascinated by them. And, you know, looking back, I can see that what I was really, really interested in was how the brain works and what people experience. And I love people who experience strange things because it jolts me. And, you know, I like being jolted because that means I'm expanding my understanding of something. So I don't like being secure in a way or smug um, in a fixed knowledge of something. I think, you know, we in order to be alive and to understand ourselves and the world, we need to we need to break down memories as well as solidify them. So these guys, you know, they just did so much for me and gave me so many insights and then my patients, you know, I, I just fascinated by psychiatry 
and by psychopathology. And um, I suppose it was it was all of this was building up in me and massive questions were um, arising in my brain because of it. And then, you know, as neuroscience came of age, it, it just gave me that explanation that allowed me to connect up all these observations I'd made. So I think there's a great purity in great science and in great literature. They, they learned to just observe to bring me back to Proust. Proust was introspectively observing himself, but he made a mistake in a way. He was, he was trying to live the past. He was looking for times that were lost. Yeah. And he understood at the end of his trilogy that the world is memory. But, and and that's, that's a huge thing to discover. You could trivialize, say, oh yeah, the whole world's memory, but it's an absolutely fascinating observation and it's very profound and he you know he he built himself up into a frenzy of introspection (laughs) to the extent that he was over interpreting his body sensations and you know he was a neurotic um hypochondriac person but he was he was over interpreting everything and he sort of he had to immerse himself in some very very intense way and you know all the great writers did that. So so moving on to moving on to Beckett. I mean Beckett for me is the king of introspection because I think he you know I, I don't know how he did it, but he had some sort of genius in being able to break down individuals in ways that allowed us see certain aspects of here completely integrated in most of us but by breaking things down and just looking at one aspect he sucks us into a sense of understanding ourselves that is on the one hand um slightly disintegrated but on the other hand understanding that as something separate allows us to understand the whole of ourselves in a more complete way and he does this particularly in terms of time. He takes away time. And I think that's really interesting, uh, waiting for, waiting, like waiting is time, waiting for Godot. You know, there's no tomorrow, there's no today. They wake up every day in the same place. They, they've got very different characters, but at the same time, they're not differentiated because they seem to be in the same place. There seems to be something comical about them that is the human condition. We are comical, ultimately. We're stuck in ourselves. But we, you know, we separate ourselves out by being in places and by being in a certain period in the continuous development of ourselves as people in terms of developing our sense of self. And in a way, they have no sense of self. They're, they're, they're shocking. They're frightening. He covers all that up, of course, with great um, comic uh, sweeps, um, but I I don't find him comical. When I'm in the theatre and I'm listening to Beckett and people are laughing, I'm sort of shivering <laughs> yeah. because I think that what he's doing is almost superhuman, um, you know, above and beyond what a normal human being could do. And I often think he must have lived in a very separate space to everybody else, although he, he was a very companionable person and love to drink and love to have conversations and, you know, always had, um, you know, 
intimate uh, romantic relationships and so on. In some ways, the fact that he was able to do that uh, means to me that he was a very lonely person in some ways, that he could go into a disintegrated, you know, space and um, create something amazingly coherent within that disintegrated space. So I suppose what we're doing all our lives is we're doing the opposite to what Beckett did. We're trying to make narratives that, that give us a meaning, um, that give us a sense of coherence with ourselves and with the world. So we make up stories. We make up stories about ourselves. My, you know, I'm telling stories about myself. You know, that's what I do in the book. Um, but as, as Beckett points out, you know, that's all fabricated. That coherence is made from, you know, we're driven to make that coherence by the need to move on, to get things done, to be somebody, to have an identity, to be able to speak for ourselves. And that's just a human drive, I think, to have coherence, to have a narrative, to be able to communicate. And you you need that really, I think, to be to be happy. I mean, I'm certainly happiest when I'm in a place that's familiar to me. I'm excited if I go away on holidays and I kind of like that whole breaking down of my life. But, you know, that, that kind of deep contentment comes from old friendships, comes from family. If you're lucky enough to, to have a happy family and a happy family background, all dysfunctional, but, you know, happiness overrides that. <laughs> um, so, you know, I suppose that drive for coherence, for cohesion, um, is, is, is really how we form our sense of self in the world. Thank you for listening to this discussion. I wish to thank Veronica for sharing her time and fascinating insights into memory. Visit our website, liberia.io, for news of future events and book recommendations.